Greetings, Little Wars TV fans and uh, patrons of the channel. Uh, so great to have you back on another episode of the podcast. I am Greg, and today I am joined by Tom. And uh, we're going to be talking about a topic that is very uh, near and dear to both of our hearts, Tom. We're talking about how to design a good historical scenario and what the challenges are to doing that. Um, so before we before we get into the meat of the discussion, Tom, why don't um, why don't I just kind of pose a general question to you? Uh, what is it about historical scenario design that you find enjoyable in the first place? Because I know there are a lot of people in our hobby who don't really like researching and writing scenarios. They'd rather just kind of grab a scenario off the shelf. But you and I are both you know unique in the club that this is a part of the hobby we both really enjoy doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, hello, everyone. Uh, great to be here with you, Greg. Um, yeah, I would actually say it's probably, um, I mean, I love all parts of the hobby, but it is it is one of the main drivers for me as using this hobby and, you know, the materials we use as an exploration of, you know, historical events and topics. And so I, I do love doing it. Um, because it, to me, it's like, it, you know, I can spend a whole weekend doing it. It's like a meditation on a particular, you know, event in history or topic or theme. And, and I just find that the writing a scenario for, um, for playing out is actually, uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, motivation to really dig into a topic. If I know I'm actually going to get it in the ta on the table at the end of some process, all the better. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's just uh, there's something about writing historical scenarios that really forces you, I feel like, to to dig a little bit deeper. I mean, you have to go beyond the superficial levels of research. It's not something you can just kind of do from a Wikipedia article because you've got to get the orders of battle for both sides. You're going to need to find maps, which sometimes are hard to find. Right. Uh, you got to scale both of those to the miniatures you have available and the table space you have available. And then there's the whole question of coming up with special rules or twists. And those are all things that I think we want to talk about in this podcast. And there are so many different directions that you and I could go here. But off air, before we started recording, I think that you know we had agreed that a good way to go about this might be to take a series of case studies, to look at battles that we have played in our club and talk about some of the challenges that we faced in designing historical scenarios for those battles. Right, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, so which one do you wanna start with? Um, well, let's see, I, I think a really good one to start with um, is an easy one. And uh, I'll, I'll say First Manassas. The Battle of First Manassas to me is a really easy case study of a historical scenario that I think anybody could kind of design. And, and the reason that I'm feeling that way is because you've got two forces that are very equal in size. You know, the Union and Confederate armies are, are very equivalent here, not just in manpower, but in, in, in training and preparation. So this is not an asymmetrical issue. And it's also a meeting engagement. Uh, so really, in terms of historical scenario design, this is, this is what you would consider a fair fight, or <laughs> at least as fair of a fight to me as you can get in historical battles. And that's rare. I mean, that is really rare. Right. No, you're right about that. Although, uh, you know, with this one, um, timing of arrival of units uh, certainly drives, uh, you know, something you have to consider here. It, it's critical. You know, the, the reinforcements uh, that come in for the Confederates um, under Johnson, um, it, you know, that's that's something you have to build into the scenario. And, and the delay, how long it takes, 
you know, the Union column uh, to arrive uh, at Matthews Hill uh, via those looping, you know, uh, roads. So, yeah, it is. It's even up, but there's already some. I like to call them, you know, they're they're th they're handholds, things you can get a hold on. Because uh, let's face it, if it was just a basic, you know, meeting engagement, equal forces, here's some terrain. Actually, I know we'd have fun with it. Uh, yeah, it doesn't take much for me to have fun with miniatures, but. Um, <laughs> I actually, right away, you start to think about, oh, how do we make this more interesting? And also, there you have the history to actually make it more interesting for you. Yeah, no, the the reinforcement schedule, that's an interesting point you raise. And I think that that is a, a great example of a place where uh, a pitfall that I, I have seen mistakes made in other historical scenarios I've played. And one of the most common mistakes that you see in any historical scenario that we, we avoided in ours because we were aware of this from experience, is that uh, very often you find scenarios where clearly the person who wrote it um, didn't do something as basic as measure distances on the table and movement <laughs> rates. You know, I know, I know that you and I have both played games where we're playing a scenario and you get to the end and you're like, wait a minute. You know, this was like a 10-turn scenario and you measure it out and it's like, my reinforcements couldn't have even made it into the battle or, or they would make it so late uh and so i i think actually you when you mentioned the reinforcement schedule that's a that's a really good point because that's a pitfall that i see uh, in other scenarios you want to make sure that guys are able to actually get there quick enough and sometimes that might mean speeding up the arrival a little bit slightly ahistorically so that you can get those units on the table yeah, well, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think it, it comes down to relative. So like if you think in terms, to me, this battle, uh, you start with a union um, advantage, right? Although it's split. But to me, it's just relative. It doesn't have to be the exact timing. It's just, you know, these things, these things don't happen at the same time. So you want to make sure that there is some difference within the scenario and how detailed you want to get about that, to your point. Uh, quite honestly, uh, playtesting scenarios is is a big way to capture the type of thing you described, which is, you know, the how long does this really take both in terms of the battle and in terms of, you know, the three or four hours you have to play it out. Right. Yeah, no, playtesting is huge. People often don't do it. And we've been guilty of not doing it as well for battles that we've done, even on the channel uh, that we have not sure. playtested. There's only so much um, time, yeah. Exactly. Sometimes you just want to get it on the table and you want to find out if it works. Uh, and as you go, you know, with experience, it, it works more often than when you start. But um, so here's a question I want to ask you about the Battle of First Manassas, because when we talk about historical scenario design, to me, this is kind of the core of a philosophical design question. How much latitude as a scenario designer do you want to give the players to do something different? than what happened historically. And in the case of First Manassas, great example, because we, we picked a route uh, when we did this episode on the channel. Do you make the players set up in the same deployment that they had historically, because that's a really big part of the battle and why it turns out the way it does, or do you give the players the latitude to sort of deploy however they want within certain parameters? Like, you know, the Confederates have to be on the south side of the bull run, the the union has to be on the north side. We we made the choice, the conscious choice in this scenario, to allow total ahistorical deployments. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we gave we gave the players the forces they had historically and said, hey, you set this thing up however the heck you want along these fords, and then we're going to just play this thing out. And our battle was extremely different from the historical battle because of that latitude. So, you know, where do you fall on that scale? How much latitude do you think players should have in that? Well, I mean, if, uh, you know, if you were telling me I'm only ever going to run First Manassas for a group of people um, one time, Right, and that's their only time they're going to experience First Manassas. Then I'd I'd feel compelled to do it, uh, you know, historically. Uh, oh, okay. Right. I mean, just in the but if if as I would I would always love to play alternate versions of any battle. I have never never a problem with that. But I'd like to sort of have the reference point of here's the historical one, and now you know the next time we play, let's change it up. But I do in the first Manassas situation. I'm also a big fan, and I've I've set up scenarios that um, basically get people in theater, right? So get them in the environs that you're talking about. You know, here, you know, Northern Virginia here, um, and you know, you can imagine if you can imagine from what you know of the larger campaign. I'm still anchoring it, you know, historically, but it, from what you know of the larger campaign. Could these guys be here instead of here? Uh, I, I'm certainly game to play that out. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess you could argue in our scenario, it was a very historical deployment. It's just we started the scenario the day before the actual battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm sure this is a topic and a, and a point that is going to come up later on in our podcast as we go through more case studies. But I am very firmly in the camp of giving players a little extra leeway. When I'm playing a historical scenario, look, we all know how the Battle of First Manassas turned out, and we know why, because we've now read many books about it, and that's part of what you do when you love reading about military history. I don't want to be forced to make the same mistakes that McDowell made. You know, I don't want to have my hands tied. The reason I want to play a historical scenario is to see if I can do better than Irvin McDowell, and if I have to adopt his exact deployment and the way that he set it up, then I feel like I'm... I'm in a little bit more of a simulation than I am in the kind of war game that I want to play. Well, I mean, to that end, and we don't need to, but for example, McDowell, I would say, you know, McDowell starts at Centerville and then you're basically, you decide how you want to deploy. So is that, you know, that type of deployment's fine. But, you know, there's also the fact that, you know, I like, again, it gets to the audience. We play with a very experienced audience who does know, you know, the players we play with, they do know the history for the most part. We'll, we'll, every now and then we'll pull up an obscure battle nobody knows much or not everybody right. knows a lot about. But so that's a group that where it's like, yeah, well, you're, you're already in the um, sandbox kind of mode. You know what I mean? It's, it's a it's good environment. But I actually happen to run a lot of scenarios for a couple of people who um, have no real, I'm the only miniature experience they have. And we all love history. So I use those as, you know, I, I do give latitude. It's always latitude, but it's more like, hey, I, I want you to guys to know uh, that you come away from this with a reasonable sense that, oh, I understand now better how that battle actually went. And you get to experience some of the decisions the commanders makes. You know, you'd always want to leave some of that. You make a great point about the audience. Uh, that's actually something I hadn't really considered when I was thinking about designing this scenario. But you're right. I mean, the fact that we have a much more veteran group of players who have actually played this battle multiple times in the club uh, sort of lends itself maybe to, to giving more latitude than 
running it, as you said, as you sometimes do for guys who may only ever play this battle one time. So there's, there's, a, there's a great point right there. Keep your I audience think, in mind when you're designing a scenario. Yeah, well, I think you do a great job of that in the uh, Ultra Freedom scenarios, you know what I mean, like uh, All Quiet on the Potomac, where you essentially give the layout, but then you say, look, do what you want. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and I, I do appreciate yeah. that. Uh, I think it's a great approach. I just, uh, here's, a, here's a question on scenario. We may get into it elsewhere, certainly at Antietam if we pick that up. But uh, topography, you know, geography, the whole, um, how, how, how rigid are you on that? Or maybe not rigid, but, you know, how, how comprehensive do you feel like you need to be on that? Mm, boy, that's a great question. And I, wow, that really depends on the battle. But um, look, I mean, you, you have to capture whatever the key features are of the battlefield. So, you know, in the case of First Manassas, what's really important? Is, is the location of Matthews and Henry Hill essential? I mean, of course, I'm going to have them out there. But to me, it's not as essential as the river needs to be where the river was. And you need to have each of those fords on the table. Because that is what the entire battle revolved around. Which ford did you cross? Which one didn't you cross? That was everything. And the exact road network, you know, I think we, you know, we did stick to it, but I guess I wouldn't be as concerned about it as trying to just boil down the key features. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to aim those that I try to capture that. That's a fun part of, cause I do actually, um, I think topography is so much of the driver of battles. Oh, it is definitely. Um, and, and meaning that, and, and, you know, men flowing over these grounds, like, you know, it's like wa water in some ways. So, you know, first Manassas, can I think of anything I really need to capture from the hills? I mean, I think those broad open hills, which you get on Henry and Matthew, um, and you kind of have a false top on Henry and, um, you know, they're great artillery platforms to begin with. Um, sure. So you're like, okay, if those hills, I mean, if those hills are in the table, you'd expect people would probably sense that they're, you know, uh, useful, but you're right. If after the fords and the Creek, um, you know, to me, it's always a little bit about, uh, the road networks are critical, uh, you know, again, but you're abstracting, you don't have to have every farm lane, right? I uh, guess it depends on the rules you're playing too. I mean, so in some sets of rules, they, they don't even have road movement, but in other sets of rules, it's really important. So, um, you know, that, that <laughs> that's got to play into this too. Well, you're absolutely right. And and certainly you can make a great game of uh, of any of those places, you know, on a board game. I mean, you could easily abstract right. them. So so it's absolutely true. Uh, but I do love the, uh, there, I, to me, it's about the essence, right? It's sort of like, you know, these are, these are the three or four things you have to capture in terms of terrain for a given battlefield. You know, it's like, what are the vistas? You know, what's the art, what's the, what's the line of sight you know how's that impacted by features um what are slow areas right so the the runs and the creeks and the woods um and uh you know what are the kind of the the choke points um so yeah i think you can make a a great game with all of those i just to me it goes back to it's it's what i enjoy um as far as you know designing a scenario it's part of the process, so I, I probably will try to capture it. Although I never, you know, there's some tables uh, that get made that are just stunning, and some of the ones uh, we've made for the uh, Little Wars episodes are, are magnificent. You know, they do a great job of capturing 
all the detail, but still leaving it, you know, playable, has to be playable. Yeah, and, and I think that because of the nature of First Manassas, there's so much research that's been done. There's tons of maps and orders of battle that are very readily available as a scenario designer. Um, I think we I think we did a good job on that scenario in the episode. I'm I'm really happy with how it turned out. It was a great game, probably one of the best games um, that we've had, and just in terms of the the tension and how close it was. So that that to me was a, a really easy scenario to design. But um, let's move to a tough one. Um, let's let's move away from First Manassas and let's move to an example of something that actually I thought we did very poorly on the channel. Okay, uh, it was it was not a good scenario design. And we didn't play test it, which is probably part of it. But we fell victim to a number of pitfalls in this. And I want to talk about Foy. It was the second episode of Little Wars TV. Uh, we were covering the, uh, the famous attack that's depicted in Band of Brothers of, of Dyke kind of falling apart as he leads part of uh, Easy Company across that open field uh, into the town of Foy. And uh, you were in that game. So um, I know we're going back a couple of years. Let me test your memory. Uh, what's, your, what's your recollection of what that scenario was like as a player? Well, I, uh, I was a German uh, player. Uh, so it was actually, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was more enjoyable than it was for the Americans. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's all about perspective, but... I do recall that uh, it it was very difficult for the Americans, as it you know it's it's a it's a challenge, it's a tactical challenge, no doubt about it. But um, yeah, that one probably that's one where you wonder would I spend the time to try to make it better? Um, I don't know. There's so many other scenarios to run. But uh, what's your recollection? What's a key takeaway you have there? Well, uh, I was one of the unfortunate American players there, along with Chow. Uh, and no, no, we, I you yeah, we, we didn't have a great time. Uh, it was, uh, if you're not familiar with the historical battle of Foy, the, the Americans have to cross a lot of open ground, snow covered ground with, with very, very little cover and attack into a town. And the Germans are all, you know, waiting for them in buildings. So it's a classic attacker defender scenario. And the Americans do have a numerical superiority. They're also higher quality troops. But it's a really tough, um, a really tough assignment to cross that field. But actually, the reason that I thought we did such a poor job on the scenario is it just tactically wasn't all that interesting for either side. You know, as the German player, you you sit in the buildings and you shoot and you hope that you roll well. And as the American player, uh, you just got to run across the open ground and hope that the German player doesn't hit you. <laughs> and um, you know, to me, looking back on it. That was just a mistake, you know. There, as you said, there are always things you can do to make a scenario more interesting. It's just a question of how many twists do you want to put in. You know, do you want to incorporate fog of war elements? There's lots of tricks, and maybe we can talk about and brainstorm some ideas for Foy. But we we didn't use any of those. We just kind of played it straight up. Historical orders of battle, historical map. I mean, those are all available. They're well researched, and we kind of put it out there, and it was a massacre, and it was very uninteresting. I think for both sides. Well, um, I think I think part of it uh, is so. The question would be: Could you take Foy and with a different rule set, uh, with a different scale, perhaps, or, or something? You know, a crunchier rule set, you know, or not? Could you make it interesting? Because 
it always that's always a question of like okay this is this is a real tactical challenge it would have been in real life um you know do i want to you know what what would help somebody succeed in this like what tactics would have been used that maybe we didn't use on the table because we didn't either we didn't think of them or we didn't know how to make the rules work tactically in that way you know what i mean so for example we the germans end up um when they do get some pressure on them and they do it at a, at a at a key point over on i think the right flank um they end up using smoke right to um right, to right. Solve problems and it does uh so that was like okay we figured that out and we did it and uh but look i you know I, i'm not gonna i don't have a strong memory either way like of you know again as i said for the german i and i also you know i knew the rule set uh reasonably well chain of command um mm -hmm. and um so to me it was like okay this was fine but you know as you say looking back as the second episode um you know probably could have used some more excitement yeah so as i'm thinking about it in hindsight i think um two suggestions okay there's two things that we could have done maybe to make that battle more interesting tactically for both sides if you want to stick with the scale we did where we kind of zoomed in on that field where dyke's men were crossing mm -hmm. we just needed to give the americans more cover mm -hmm. and maybe maybe that is slightly ahistorical but you know i think you could also look at it as you know look there's always dips in the ground there's always exactly. an extra haystack or two there's a little ravine maybe a little gully here or there those can be difficult to you know get on the tabletop without a bunch of hills but we needed to you know maybe just find more avenues for the americans to have some choices for their advance that that would have been one fix but not mm -hmm. my preferred fix i still think that would have maybe not been that interesting of a scenario because it's just hey one side's got to cross the field we added some more cover i think a better choice a much better choice is that we should have played that game in 15 millimeter scale mm -hmm. we should have represented the entire american attack on the mm -hmm. town of foy because when you zoom out a little bit Right. It's actually a very interesting scenario because the Americans were trying to enfilade and wrap around the town, and they did. Historically, they actually encircled the town and were coming at it from multiple directions. And I'm thinking about, wow, you know, that would have been a really good game as the American players, you know, you could try to figure out which angles you wanted to take. And as the German players, now suddenly, instead of just one field to defend, now you've got pressure coming in from all sides, and you're trying to think about, oh boy, do I need to extricate myself from this town? Do I need to preserve an avenue of retreat out of this town? How long can I hold the town? So I think the number one mistake we made at Foy is that we zoomed in too far. We should have zoomed out. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree with that. One, because I also, my, my preferred level of play for World War II um, you know, especially infantry actions is 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 at that level above uh, above what we had. Um, so, you know, battalion attacks, um, you know, multi companies certainly those would be. Uh, I think I always prefer those in World War II to begin with. So, right. but I agree with you. That's that's a. Um, it's interesting because to me, yeah, you broaden uh, the operation, and you also honestly, I think. Um, I'm just, I think we all are, you know, it's, I'm a big fan of 15 millimeter World War II because for those larger operations, because uh, things like terrain also become, I think, easier to kind of get on the table without them looking to, you know, what is that thing doing there, right? Um, right. And be more subtle. So I agree that, that actually, now that you say that, I would be, oh, okay. I, <laughs> 
I'd be entertained by that. Maybe we should go back and play that one again. You know, that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. Uh, how about another one? What uh, what's another scenario that comes to mind for you that uh, that we could talk about as a good case study for some challenges that may present themselves when you're designing a historical scenario? Uh, so Antietam, uh, you know, another Civil War, American Civil War one here, but uh, it's one that we've played as an episode. And um, so, you know, there, I think um, you go back to the same issues right away of um, how to me it would be the first step would be okay at what point are you starting the clock like you guys you know at first manassas you said you it ended up a day earlier you know antietam um you know how far back do you kind of roll to, and where are the armies when they enter that area and most importantly do, do the federals you know wait uh you know for too long uh to let it get set up so at which point do you start the battle of antietam at which point did you in the episode in the episode, we started the the morning of the battle, so we we didn't rewind it. Yep, we the armies were set up as they were historically uh, for our Antietam battle. We didn't rewind the clock or allow for any wild a historical deployments. Mm -hmm. uh, the Federals did have some flexibility in how they set up, but the main problem that you face, I mean, Antietam's a great case study for historical scenario design because look at what happens historically. You know, you've got the Union Army outnumbering the Confederates by more than two to one. The Confederates are backed up against an impassable river with only one escape route over the river. Historically, it, it should be a complete blowout. You know, the Federals should just utterly annihilate them. But we know that that is not what happened historically. So if you're trying to kind of reverse engineer this and say, huh, okay, so how do I design a scenario where both sides have a chance to win, but the Confederates don't get completely steamrolled right um and the way that so i've played antietam with multiple rule sets and let me give you let me give you a, a really bad one that i had this is this is years <laughs> ago we played this at the comic store we ran the battle of antietam with fire and fury okay. and i don't remember where we got the scenario i think somebody grabbed it online who, who knows who wrote it but the way that this designer of the scenario decided they were going to level the playing field is that they artificially froze multiple Union Corps. Because, you know, historically, McClellan is really bad at coordinating his army. That's the reason the Confederates are able to escape here, is that McClellan never uses his two-to-one advantage. Right. He only ever attacks a corps at a time. So the scenario that we played said that if you were on the Union side, you could only activate like one or two corps at a time. Mm -hmm. The other corps were just frozen. You, you just couldn't use them. And that is... That is such a lazy way to solve this problem. I mean, I, I understand that it is a problem and you do have to solve it somehow, but that is a, a horrible way to solve it because as the union player, you're forcing the union player to make the same mistakes that McClellan made. You're, you're not giving them any chance to rewrite the history. So to me, that was, that was just really lazy scenario design. Uh that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, that would uh, that would be too extreme in my book. Um, you know, I I would, as I assume you, other options would be you give uh, you give the union player. Everybody has some sort of you know limited command um, uh, actions, and so they can't you know motive. They can't operate all core at the same time, but they could certainly choose different ones. Would be you know one way to capture some of that. Uh, but what have you done? What did you do in the the scenario? 
So in, uh, we, we played Antietam using my rule set, Altar of Freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the Battle of Antietam is maybe the best example of why I think the command and control system in Altar of Freedom shines. Because if you're not familiar with the, how the rule set works, each side sort of gets a number of priority points, command right. points. And then you can allocate those points however you want. Um, and in the Antietam scenario, the Union Army just has many fewer of those points than the Confederates. So even though they outnumber the Confederates by two to one, they, they're not going to have as many chances. But no one's dictating who's frozen or who's not frozen. It's up to you as the player to decide how you're going to allocate that. Right. right. Um, so that's a case where the rule system kind of allows this scenario to work. But if you're going to play Antietam with a different rule system, then as the scenario designer, it's going to be incumbent on you to figure out a way to make this work. And, you know, to me, that's that's one of the most fun and enjoyable parts of writing a historical scenario. Because as you said, there's there's multiple ways that you could tackle this. There's there's a bunch of different sort of fixes that you could come up with. Right. Um, so yeah, this is... It's it's a great case study, though. I mean, one side outnumbers the other two to one, but loses the historical battle. <laughs> yeah, no, it, uh, it certainly, I think that's a that's a important aspect to capture that you capture there. Um, to me, that's gets in an interesting thing around, um, you know, if you're if you're writing a scenario and I've I've written some scenarios for myself um, and I've used them in different rule sets and you know, it doesn't come up a lot of times, but, but there are, there's absolutely switching between rule sets where suddenly in the scenario, you now have to bridge uh, the command structure or the fog of war or something that's missing from that rule set so that you can pull it off because you can't just pick up a rule set sometimes and say, you know, uh, I'm going to play Antietam. Um, you know, no, no, you, you can't. That. Great, great example. Um, how about volley and bayonet? I don't know how much experience you have with volley and bayonet. I love that rule set. It's an old yeah, kind of just with Napoleonics for me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's you know most yeah. often played for Napoleonics, but I've I've used it to do Stones River before. You know, ACW okay. battle. But volley and bayonet is very famous for not really having much of a command and control system. Yeah, you can kind of you can kind of do whatever you want. There's some minor limitations, but that's a that's a great example. Of yeah. A really tough rule set to use for the Battle of Antietam unless you're going to introduce special scenario restrictions, which you almost have to on the right. Union player or else it's going to be a it's going to be a train wreck of a battle. Right. You know, another thing about Antietam that uh, to me, if I'm thinking in terms of um, uh, the battlefield is which isn't, you know, I don't think I fully appreciated until I first went there was how undulating um, the fields are there and, and how many like little valleys that mm-hmm. pop up on the battlefield. And it's always, and then you throw in the smoke, right, of the battle. And to me, part of what I think makes Antietam so, you know, uh, bloody uh, is, is these uh, regiments, you know, brigades and regiments, you know, come upon each other at such close range sometimes. Um, coming over a hill or a rise or, and it's not that steep. It's, it's, you know, it's, but it's built in the ground. And then you throw in the smoke and that's always one that um, it, that's very, it's almost impossible to capture. Right. Uh, you, I mean, 
And I've always, I'm always interested in some challenges like that, where you're like, you've got a battle, you've got a mixture of terrain and battlefield conditions that how do you, you know, you can't really just doing a board or a table for it doesn't fully capture it. You have to have some interaction between a terrain model and, and some rule set, you know what I mean? Um, no, that's a, that's a great point. And if you have never visited the battlefield at Antietam, or at least, you know, maybe then read copious amounts about it, you, you wouldn't appreciate that point that you made, Tom. I mean, it's, yeah, it, the crazy part about that, and I'm sure this is true in so many battles, but, you know, you and I have both been to Antietam, so we know. When you look at a, a map, you can look at as many maps as you want of the Battle of Antietam, and there are tons of them. So if you're just kind of researching as, this, as a scenario, you pull up three maps, the maps don't show you all those little dips. I mean, they can't. Right. It's, it's not on the map. So you're looking at the map trying to design the scenario, and it's like, oh, you know, it's pretty flat. You know, there's a little bit of a light ridge here that the Confederates are defending, uh, but, you know, it's a pretty flat battlefield. No, it's actually, <laughs> it looks that way on the map, but it's not at all. Um, so let's let's pick up on that thread. I mean, um, let's bat around some ideas. If, if you wanted to design a scenario, maybe you wanted to zoom in and, and do it just like part of the Battle of Antietam, you know, what ideas could we come up with in scenario design to represent the fact that regiments that may have only been a couple hundred yards from each other on what ordinarily on a map looks like a flat field, but in fact is not a flat field, and they may not even be able to see each other on the battlefield. right. right. How, how would you, um, again, I'm putting you on the spot here. because Yeah, just, no, I mean. Uh, what kind of ideas funny. could we come up with? Yeah, it's, it's um, well, so I think part of it is you can sort of get the, uh, which often isn't used as much as sometimes I'd like to see it as, is smoke on a battlefield, particularly in this right. period. Uh, so That's you could almost, I would take a stab at using the smoke that captures essentially the same, the whole issue of terrain and smoke, which is line of sight is impacted and people don't, uh, you know, can't really fire until they are much closer range in some parts of the battlefield. So that might be a way to do it because I can't see, I mean, the terrain is, um, I mean, that's a tough, I don't know how to do it in terrain, but uh, that would be my first stab is you just need more smoke to start with. And that could be true of any Civil War battle. <laughs> no, I, I like the I like the smoke idea. That would be a neat um That'd be a neat mechanic to introduce. So one that I'm thinking of as you were talking is, yeah, it's it's impossible to do the terrain. I mean, how do you represent a, you know, a six foot gully mm -hmm. <laughs> on a six by four tabletop? Uh, so here here's an idea though. Um, you'd have to play test this to see how this worked. We've never tried it, but uh, maybe you allow each player um, to leave one of their units. You know, a, I don't know what scale you're playing this theoretical game in, but let's say you, you can leave a regiment in each brigade off the table. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not even on the table. Right. But I then see. they're allowed to sort of pop up yeah. during the battle as, as, as a complete surprise. <laughs> and you could, you could kind of, you know, you could say anywhere, they can pop up anywhere within, even behind the enemy line, you know, they could pop up within 12 inches of their parent formation. So oh, you just yeah. kind of allow these like random pop-up units, and now you're almost springing ambushes on the other side. Which, if you've read about the Battle of Antietam, kind of yeah. happened. No, you've you've got it. That is a great idea. I would. Uh, that that is very good. Um, and I think you're right. That just suddenly, um, not know both you being able to pop up a, a regiment and not knowing when somebody might pop up on your you know your right flank. Uh, that would be well worth playtesting. 
Yeah, we, we've never tried something like that. But I mean, this sort of impromptu discussion that you and I are having here, I mean, this, this is one of the reasons I know you and I both love historical scenario design, because, you know, we game at the club every Monday and we could try some crazy ass idea like this next Monday. <laughs> I mean, who knows if it works or not, but it's, it's fun to try this stuff because that might be a really good way to represent the, the surprise of a regiment being in a gully that you just couldn't see. Right, right. Yeah, so this gets into the, these are, this is all the dimensions of scenario design that are, you know, obviously we label this historical, but um, this is another dimension in terms of modeling, uh, not so much the history of it, but the environmental impact of it, right? Um, right. And uh, I love that angle too, uh, you know, it, and it gets, it could even get into, and a lot of this is more captured in rules, but we've played many scenarios where you have to alter, you know, firing uh, probabilities a little bit or or somehow adjust them for the fact okay in this particular battle um, you know obviously you have weather impacts on firing and so forth but you could even say like you know if I play this straight up um, you know take an example of a great war type of rule set you know uh, mm -hmm. we've played a number and uh, you know it's it's just extreme most rule sets are extremely focused on making that those <laughs> scenarios absolutely brutal you know in terms of uh you know casualties for units and so it gets into the issue of okay the same thing same period same type of weapons not on the western front you know do you have to make adjustments to even things like firing uh certainly you do with movement sometimes the scenario will impact you oh yeah 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 absolutely um so back to the just the uh, the thought you had on the um the regiment popping up at Antietam. Um, yeah, you, you like that idea, don't you? I do You're like I do that like that time. a lot. But here's another one. So um, it, see where you go with this one. So I was thinking when we ran, our, you know, the um, Pickett's Charge the other night, um, I was originally in the back of the, the rule book is um, the Bloody Lane at Antietam, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the Sunken sure. Road. And uh, that's a that's pretty decent. It's you know five brigades versus four brigades you know on the road. And but the issue there is always one of um, you know when you come over that rise to the the sunken road, um, you know you've got it, again uh, you've got till you get to that lip and start to come down. That's my recollection. I could be remembering wrong, but there's there you're in shadow so much. So you're if people know you're up there, they can obviously you know fire at you, but. The, then you get to that really exposed area. And that's one of like, how do you, I've actually played that with that rules. Um, hmm. And it was just brutal uh, for the, for the federal forces um, as it is. Right. But they do, they do achieve a breakthrough at some point. So you got to think, okay, there's got to be, you know, they, do they just get really lucky to ever be able to do that? Were there any, I've not played that particular scenario. I mean, were there any special scenario rules to no. to reflect well, that no there wasn't so that would be again it was the back of the rule book but it's sort of one of those things where um so i tried to d design the table a bit you know to give uh you know the terrain a bit more of that and say here's the ridge line or here's here's yeah. a point where you know you can't fire uh at a certain rate or effectiveness about beyond that that's that's an easy way to do it um but it just shows, I mean, it gets into the whole issue of how many different, you know, axes you can take to model. Because really, sometimes it gets into, you know, I, I know neither of us are looking for simulations or, you know, fans of it in that sense. But 
there's a modeling aspect of these scenario writings that where you really have to start to think about, okay, at the end of the day, especially if you're doing kind of a one-off, like you're doing an episode, right? It's not right. just you're writing a scenario for, you know, Saturday playtime. It's, I, I, I'd like an episode and I will, you know, we want it to be interesting and uh, challenging games. You certainly wouldn't want Antietam to be a steamroller, right? That wouldn't be um, very interesting. So it just gets to all the things you might consider to make it work. And I think we've discussed a lot of them. Um, trying to think if, um, if there's anything missing from the broader topic of, uh, you know, well, let me just ask this, because I always find this interesting. What is your process? Like, what's the shortest, uh, you know, scenario you've put together where you're like, and I know you do this, it's like, it's, it's Friday and you, you're going to run something on Monday and you're probably <laughs> whipping you, something you mean but what's you your, mean it's what's you mean it's Monday morning. Yeah. It's Monday morning, Tom. <laughs> and I'm eating breakfast at my desk thinking, ah shit, you know, at three o'clock today I'm running a scenario at the club. Yeah, I've I'll had those. Monday for printing stuff. Everything's got oh, Okay. Be yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, look, in those cases, and I know we've both been in the time crunch case where you've got to whip whip together a historical scenario. You, you definitely need to pick the right scenario. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's not a case where I'm putting together an Antietam scenario. Right. But it is a case where I'm maybe putting together something more like a, like a first Manassas scenario, where, where it is relatively equal forces, meeting, with a meeting engagement. engagement. And you know maybe I'm just going to introduce one or two wrinkles, yes. one or two special rules. And I do think you know that that brings up a, another pitfall that I know we've seen in scenarios, including some of the ones that we've done in our own club, is that occasionally you can, as a designer, maybe overstuff the scenario. You, you try to put in too many special rules. You're trying to model too many aspects of the game. And it, it is as much of an art as it is a science. I mean, you, you kind of have to get a feel when you're writing a historical scenario of, look, what are the really important elements that I want to emphasize in this game? Because you're never you you can't get them all. You can't have five pages of special rules to overwhelm the players. You kind of have to pick and choose your battles. Yeah, and and I don't think you need a lot of them, honestly. It's it's always to me it goes back to what's the essential. Like if you, what's your one takeaway from this battle? You know, or you know, a couple that you know, um, yeah. this happened, and so I'd like to make sure that you know it has a chance of happening. You know, right? At, I'll, let me let me jump back to another early episode we did that you were in Agincourt. You know, yeah. As you think about the historical battle of Agincourt, we know the forces that were there. We know what the map looked like. But if you're designing that as a historical scenario, what is the one thing that you know you've got to grapple with as a special rule? It's the muddy field. Absolutely. You, you've got to figure out what is the right way to model that. And we actually did play test that scenario on a Monday night before filming it. And we ended up changing the way that we handled the muddy field because it was too punitive. Mm -hmm. in the in the playtest version we ended up kind of backing that off a little bit because it was like impossible for the french to get across the muddy field and you know that's not a fun game for anybody well it's interesting so this is this is a uh, that particular topic to me so i i was henry uh at agincourt and uh i, I remember your starring and, role yes yes uh but i did not use the muddy field to the effect that everyone i think thought i should have or expected it and the simple fact for me, there's two issues. One, I thought my right flank with the road coming right into the flank um, mm -hmm. and cavalry over there was just a, a main line, you know, uh, into my rear. And I also, to be honest, uh, this is just a simple fact that 
I didn't think I knew how to use those rules effectively uh, in movement. They, those particular rules. Uh, days of always, nights. We played yes. days of nights. Yeah. Always struck me, and they still do, as as a little bit more rigid movement than, or at least as I understood them. Uh, mm -hmm then I felt like I want to get out from where I feel very safe and get into the muddy field. And then do I know how to get back? And, you know, it, obviously it's a discussion. What, how do you do this? How do you do that? And that always comes up. But in the heat of the moment, uh, that's what I ended up doing. And so it was interesting how the field was there, uh, custom made. Uh, and, you know, I could have, I could have, uh, I could have done more damage, no doubt about it. But uh, I chose that because, again, I wasn't sure how to make the rules work the way I needed them to. Yeah, yeah. I got that off Greg. This is like a confessional for you, is it? <laughs> you, you mean to, you mean to tell you to say a couple Our Fathers or a couple Hail Marys now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, we got to Agincourt. We were talking about uh, the essence, right? So, you know, you got to have the muddy field there. And, and I agree, sometimes in a lot of battles, it's really like, that's what you need. You just need that one recognizable, uh, you know, aspect of the battle or the ground itself. Uh, and, and you're pretty close to, I mean, I'm, like I said, that's, that's close enough for me in a lot of cases. I'm not, you know, it, to me, it's more, I enjoy the process, but the end result is, so here's, here's another uh, way I think about that is I love playing periods like medieval, uh, we mm -hmm. all do, right? Um, and recently we started, we started playing um, in 15 millimeter uh, and using line rampant. And yes. that's a very, you know, that's a very uh, straightforward rule set, not complicated. And it's, you know, it's broadly works for the medieval period, you know, right? So, um, but when I think about putting together scenario for that, um, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not basing it on, you know, if, if you restrict yourself to what's historically available or documented uh, and you've got to live with, all right, I got to only work within that parameter, then, you know, you miss out a lot of fun, right? So to me, a rule set like that and a, a, is how do you, but to me, it's always about plausibility. So we have a, you know, when we play, typically those battles are usually somebody says it's some sort of meeting engagement between different uh, retinues you know, larger than retinue, really, in that scale. And, you know, or it was a village that was under control of one faction and somebody else came and took it. And you know what? The, the, the housing looks pretty good. The costumes are right. Um, the combat fits that period. And that's good enough for me as, you know, a historically plausible um, situation. Um, right. You're sort of setting up a little bit more of just like a historical pickup game. Right. You know, it's not it's not based on an exact battle that you researched. You're just sort of getting the setting and the theme appropriate. Yeah, we, I mean, we do a ton of those kind of games in the clubs because, listen, not, not every Monday night at our club is like a famous historical battle. <laughs> right. Those are those are extremely fun. And uh, so it's, you know, it's harder for me to say uh, so in larger scale, like Altar of Freedom or um, Fire and Fury, uh, where you got brigades and, you know, divisions and so forth. Those are harder for me personally to do. I, hey, I'm going to do a pickup battle that right. has no historical, you know, link. But if you drop down a level and you're talking about the interaction of some cavalry companies or even a cavalry regiment or two somewhere in Northern Virginia in '63 through '65, I'm like, I'm there. You know what I mean? As long <laughs> as you've got the the right gear, 
right and you know you got the town uh names right uh you know that's a, that's that's perfect right because you know that stuff occurred and you know the constraints on it are really the armaments uh and the terrain and you know go have at it yeah yeah well look uh, as we as we get on to what is what we're probably about an hour here so far there's there's one more example that i definitely want to bring up um that comes to mind for me and maybe you have another one but very quickly i want to mention you know, one of my favorite episodes that we ever filmed uh and i know that i don't think you were in this one um the battle of the trebia um ancient oh, battle yep so th that's a really good one when you talk about historical scenario design because if you're not familiar with the battle of the trebia hannibal is is facing the romans in northern italy and it's what appears to be a very straight up fight but the reason Hannibal wins this battle is that he springs a major ambush with his brother's forces down in like a little bit of a, a wooded ravine. And the Romans don't know that, that that ambush is going to hit them. And that is what swings the battle. So the question for a historical scenario designer is, well, how do you pull that off? How, how do you design a scenario where a surprise needs to happen. And, you know, the Trebia is the one I'm bringing up because we filmed it, but we've also played like the Battle of Second Manassas in our club, uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville. I mean, there's there's major surprise elements that occur in those battles. And that, I think, from a design standpoint, is a, is a really interesting challenge as a designer to try to figure out how to bake it in. Because if you tell everybody we're playing the Battle of the Trebia tomorrow night, I mean, people can people can go on Wikipedia or they'll just know the history if they're military history buffs and then <laughs> it, it kind of ruins the the scenario so yeah the question is how, how do you handle that well uh i i think i know how you handled it uh but yeah we know, lied <laughs> <laughs> you told them it was a different battle completely right yeah we told we told tony and zach that we were playing the battle of dertosa and it was like oh, oh okay uh so we just <laughs> lied to them uh, because they actually they had pretty similar setups and it was chow's idea it was an absolutely brilliant idea and uh, it was, they had no idea that we were playing the Battle of the Trivia. Right. But um, th those kinds of surprises are only possible if you have a GM. And look, if you have a GM, tons of things are possible in historical scenario design. There's all kinds of fog of war that you could introduce, ambushes and surprises. I mean, we don't have time to talk about all the different tricks. But right, right. very often, players don't have the benefit of a GM who's just going to sit there and run the game and, and reveal all of these awesome surprises. You know, sometimes it's just you and me playing a game. And so let me put you on the spot and ask you, you know, if it was just you and me playing the battle of Trebia and we knew we were playing the battle of Trebia, how, how, how would you go about that? If you were the one writing that scenario, I mean, how do you make that a plausible game? Yeah, I'm, taking a stab here, but I would say, uh, as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, there's other situations where you essentially say, okay, look, you know what's coming, but here's restrictions on how you can deploy and when you can release uh, forces. Um, it's not perfect because, you know, people won't wander into a trap, but it does still give the other player some chance of pulling off um, you know, something to their advantage because the other player has more restrictions. I don't think that's a fun way to do it. Uh, so it'd be interesting if you have uh, something like your uh, your magically appearing regiment type of concept to throw well, in. Well, I mean, no, I don't have any great ideas, but why couldn't you use a very similar concept? I mean, uh, why couldn't you 
you know, if you and I are playing the Battle of the Trebia, I would say to the Carthaginian player, look, you, you don't have to spring Mago's ambush from the exact same point. You know, right. maybe right. Yeah, you, you may, and, yeah, and both, an both players would have to know. You want you know to. They, they yeah. both, right. You'd, you'd give them like five different locations and say, hey, look, you've got it planned before the battle. Here's five spots where the ambush could be. Right. You know, write down on a slip of paper which one of these five places. Um, and you could layer on more elements. You know, you could have a die roll to see when the ambush springs. You sure. know, maybe you got you got to roll at least a certain amount to get it. Maybe there's a chance it never comes at all. And then it's kind of a surprise for both players. Yeah, no, I think that'd be a that'd be a great way of doing it. It's interesting you, just when you said ambush. I've I've had to deal with recently uh, thinking about pony wars uh, and western. Oh yeah, uh, mm-hmm. situations. The only really way to make those types of uh, engage meeting engagements. I'm not talking about you know the major historical battles, but even there, ambush is such a big part of the um, you know the native Lakota and so forth, uh, the tribes. Uh, way of dealing with the uh, U.S. Uh, you know forces, and so there it's it's like okay, what's a good mechanic that it's always you know you want I'm 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 putting this out there because I, I'd like to see I need to improve that I think it worked okay, but I think there's more you could do to make an ambush like that where again you don't know where something's coming on the table um, more interesting because uh, everybody's sort of. It, it, you know, it's one of those things. You have tokens on the table. You have something that sort of uh, makes everybody wonder what everything is. Uh, or, you know, if you have a map, again, this gets back to how prepared you are for scenario. If you have a map and everybody's got their own map and you can mark things down, uh, that can also be transferred to the table. But uh, yeah, I think that would uh, that would certainly work. It's a uh, it's a uh, it, it it removes the certainty, which is always, you know, it's just one of the aspects you have to deal with in a scenario is uh, making sure that even in fairly straightforward historical ones, I, I don't mind having variation in when things arrive, right? You know, they arrive at two o'clock. Well, uh, you know, how about if they arrived at three because you had to roll or you had uh, some other thing had to take place before these other things happened. I think that's that's a great way to mix up the expectation people have of how things are going to go. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's part of what makes writing these historical scenarios so much fun because there's, there's a million different ways to experiment. I mean, we're not, we're not going to be here talking all night, but you know, at the, in our Princeton episode, and you were in that one, uh, we gave all the players a bunch of pre-battle decisions to make on a map that influenced arrival time. So there's stuff that you could do pre-battle. Um, there's, there's decisions that you could introduce for the players during the battle. And again, these things are all very helpful if you have a GM and I, I realize that's, that's not always possible. Uh, something maybe you and I can talk about in a future, uh, episode, a future podcast was, uh, one of our most popular, uh, episodes on the, uh, on the channel was the Marengo battle. And part of what made the Marengo scenario so cool is that we used five different tables. Right. Um, Absolutely. So there's there's the whole angle of introducing multiple tables that may not be directly connected to each other. Uh, that's that's a whole other can of worms. And so all these things are just there's just so many fun, neat ways to experiment with this. And that's that's what I love most about designing historical scenarios and trying to solve some of the challenges of you know how you address uh, how you address the play balance. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Princeton. That had me thinking, uh, you know, we have Brandywine coming up in the future. Yes. Right? Uh, and there yes. you have you have a similar situation where, 
you know, Washington is is along the Brandywine, holding off um, one uh, column of the British forces under Niephausen, and meanwhile he's being flanked by Cornwallis. Uh, and so, yeah, and he doesn't even know it. <laughs> he doesn't know it, but our players are going to know it, right? Right. So, how and, are we going to represent that? <laughs> that's right. So, that's one probably we have to take offline here, but it's certainly, uh, uh, I think, a key part of making that an interesting battle, but also in the context in which we're doing it, how historical does it have to be? Yeah, uh, that's that's definitely one I don't think we want to spoil on this podcast, right, but it's a right. it's a great way to kind of wrap up this wrap up this show and leave people hanging because that's I don't know. We 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 haven't designed the scenario yet. You know, we're just sort of talking about it now, but yeah, how do you everybody knows what happened at the battle of the Brandywine, you know? You're not going to surprise anybody there. And yet we're going to have to figure out a way to write that scenario where both sides might be surprised somehow. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, more to come on that, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, um, definitely more to come. So, uh, look, as we, as we wrap this one up, uh, let me put you on the spot and ask you, uh, for an example of, uh, a pitfall that you have seen in a historical scenario, either that you wrote or somebody else wrote, uh, that really uh, a common pitfall that you think that we could tell listeners to, to beware of. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of extra time to stew on that while I give one of mine. And I've already mentioned a couple, but uh, one historical design pitfall that I see a lot, and I've made this mistake in my own scenarios, comes back to that issue we mentioned at the beginning about honestly just kind of measuring the table and understanding the scale of the game. And I know that you and I have both been in games and so is probably everybody listening to this podcast where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I have been given command of this force. I, I'm in charge of the reinforcements. And they don't arrive until like the last freaking turn of the game. And you've got a player who's sitting around waiting for his stuff to come on. And yes, it's historical, right? You know, maybe this general so-and-so stuff didn't come until four o'clock at the end of the day. That's not a great, you know, <laughs> that's not a great game for anybody. So there's always a tension between historical accuracy and playability and that's the art in the great scenario you want to give people some of that historical accuracy without it being a simulation and you have to keep in mind that if you have multiple players in a game this is a tip for multiplayer design don't don't have somebody sitting around waiting until the last two turns of the game to bring their stuff on even if it's historically accurate you got to figure out a way for maybe a, a random chance or for that guy to get on the table a little bit sooner um, that's just a problem I know we've had in our club, um, and it's always one that you have to be aware of. Well, that is, I think, I think that is a great one to leave people with, and and honestly, the best answer to it is playtesting. Um, yeah. And I know it depends on what you're doing it for. If it's just a pickup, you're going to do this one time. That's fine. But even a even a modest playtest, right? Set it up and run through a few turns and figure out. Uh, I mean, I've actually done that with some games when I had a lot more time uh, where started a game and decided, you know, we needed to tweak something. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't fun anywhere, but I, I do agree with that. That is one I struggle with. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, my attitude to people who are waiting for reserves, I mean, that's what they signed up for, Greg. I, I don't know how to <laughs> make it any easier for them, but, but, uh, that said, uh, like for example, I'll just use the example, the latest example I had, which we, we played Bristow station, um, using Pickett's Charge the other night. 
And mm -hmm. I, I put that scenario together over the weekend. And uh, I actually had it out on the table. I had a different, uh, 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 I had a similar setup, but um, that got into the same issues of when do things show up to make it interesting. You, you have what could be a, it's a fairly, it's a, about three hours of drama in, in, a, in that day of battle, uh, historically what it is. Uh, the Union actually fairly soon secures a pretty decent defensive position behind the rail line. And so is there a window there for the Confederates to do anything? And I would say, based on last night, I would have, doing it again, I'd speed it up, right? I'd, I'd get them. Yeah. And I think where, where it went is, um, you know, scaling it to the table, which I ended up using a little bit larger table. And that would be one where I'd be like, okay, I, you know, as soon as it was, we were well into, I was like, I should have started here. But, and then you had the issue, which you just mentioned, you had reinforcements coming on the flank. Um, you know, now this, that's again, where I don't think everybody knew that history that uh, Early's, uh, Early shows up in Gordon's brigade uh, on the left flank there, but uh, Steve knew, I know, right. uh, and I assume right. you knew. Uh, so yep. that one was one I used a role at the end where I gave them a chance of uh, historically he showed up fairly late uh, to make a difference. They had uh, two roles to get him there earlier. And that didn't happen. But the chance was there. But I absolutely agree, because, again, at the end of the day, you're dealing with how do I fit all this into basically three hours of playtime? If I'm, you know, that's our typical, uh, you might have a little bit more time than that. And you do have to make the trade offs to make that work. Yeah, there's there's no perfect science to it. I mean, how many years have we been writing scenarios and fooling around with this stuff? And you know, we still we still make mistakes. You know, we we still have scenarios that sometimes don't work as as well as others. Uh, and you just you know, that's the fun of the exploration. Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, that uh, I guess that's going to wrap up a, a lengthy discussion here. Hopefully, it wasn't too rambling for people about. Uh, how do you design a good historical scenario? We took you through a couple of case studies of, of battles that uh, Tom and I are familiar with. And uh, I think the, the concluding thought that I want to leave with people is that anytime you're writing a historical scenario, it is very, very common for the forces to be unbalanced. Mm -hmm. it's, it's rare that you find a fair fight in history because that usually means a general did something wrong. You know, nobody's seeking out a fair fight. Every general is seeking an advantage. So all of these battles have some kind of imbalance to them. And if you want to have a historical game, you can't fix that. You have to let the players fight with what was there historically. But what you can fix are the victory conditions. Mm -hmm. You can fix special rules that try to maybe slow somebody down. We talked about that with Antietam. Uh, we talked about mistakes we made in Foy. Uh, but you can, you can balance the victory conditions. Um, and that's part of the fun. That's part of the experimentation. That's that's the reason that you the reason you do the play testing. Well, that's absolutely right, Greg. And uh, look, I, I've enjoyed our our discussion. You know, I could we could go on, uh, but it, that takes away from actually planning our next set of scenarios. And as we said, we've got a good one coming up that uh, maybe we'll get a chance to check in uh, halfway to it and talk about some of the things we're thinking about. But. Uh, uh, great to join you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure our patrons, if I know them, um, that we'll see lots of comments on this because I know uh, many of them have probably had experience designing their own uh, scenarios. And we'd love to hear uh, their thoughts and their approach and uh, just get the conversation going.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you're listening to the podcast, um, let's let's leave them with a great question. I would love to know what is the toughest historical battle that you've had to design a scenario for. You know, if you're going to leave us a comment, let us know a battle that you've struggled with uh, that you that you found was just really challenging to balance. Because uh, there's there's lots of great examples out there. So that would be a fun one for us to talk about.